Well, hello, everyone. Welcome. Trump, race and the future of the Republican Party is our topic for discussion this evening. It's going to be a very interesting discussion, I think uh, you'll find. And we'll have time for your questions later as well. But before we get underway, uh, I would like to begin this evening by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation uh, on whose land we meet here tonight. And uh, we pay our respects to their elders, both past, present and uh, also emerging. Uh, my name is John Barron. I'm a uh, US politics analyst for the ABC, co-host of Planet America and uh, honorary associate at the US Studies Centre. Mia Love is something of a political superstar. I think uh, a lot of us first saw her at the uh, Republican National Committee uh, meeting that nominated Mitt Romney in uh, 2012. At the time, she was the mayor of uh, Saratoga Springs in Utah. And it's uh, tempting to compare the barn burner of the speech that she gave to uh, remarks made by uh, Barack Obama at the Democratic National Convention eight years earlier. Uh, Mia's uh, address, I think, very succinctly uh, summarised a vision of how somebody who is uh, from a uh, Haitian immigrant background, grew up in Brooklyn, uh, was uh, able to articulate a vision for America, a new Republican vision, um, one based on on self-sufficiency, self-reliance as well. Um, And in many ways, of course, we know that uh, at the time she was running for Congress, Uh, and that both she and Mitt Romney didn't win that election. Uh, But after the election, the Republican Party conducted what got referred to as um, an autopsy. And they concluded that the party needed to become more inclusive, needed to um, uh, open itself up to uh, minority groups and to women as well. And uh, in short, they concluded that um, the Republican Party... Uh, needed to look a lot more like Mia Love. Little wonder then that in 2014 she won election to Congress, became the first black Republican woman elected to the House of Representatives, uh, a piece of history that she will always have. And even though last November she didn't win a third term, I suspect, but we will ask her about this, I suspect we haven't heard the last of Mia Love in elected politics in the United States. There are still many options open to her. Because in between 2014 and 2018, uh, the Republican Party, instead of becoming the party that the uh, 2012 autopsy anticipated, opening itself up to to migrants and diversity, uh, it became the party of Donald Trump. And that will be the uh, the topic of discussion tonight. Uh, Simon Jackman, of course, many of you know, is the CEO of the US Studies Centre, he is also a, a global expert on, on polling. Uh, his expertise on issues including things like gerrymandering, uh, drawn on uh, in major landmark uh, court cases in the United States, a very significant figure in political science in the United States as well as in Australia. So it's a pleasure to have both of them here. If you could uh, make them welcome. <laughs> When you lost last November... <laughs> Let's just jump right into it. <laughs> you, you said, um, I'm now unfettered, 
and unshackled. Mm -hmm. And that you can say what you want. Mm -hmm. um, what were you not able to say before then? Well, it's, as a representative, you, you, uh, it's one of the things that the administration, I wish, could understand, mm. is that you represent everyone at that point. Even though I have an R behind my name, I still had to be sensitive to everyone that I represent and make sure I was doing everything I can to follow the Constitution, follow the state Constitution, but still represent everyone in my district. So that means that I had to be careful. I had to be a little sensitive um, a little respectful to uh, the different political ideals. Um, the district is incredibly, more than any other district in the state of Utah, is really diverse um, in their thoughts, uh, and the gap is actually further apart. So that's what I mean by that. Now I'm not really representing, I don't think, anyone except for the platform and the principles and the platform that I believe in. So now I could be in, as, as open, as honest, and um, as uncareful or unshackled as, as I want. It seems that Utah was sort of ground zero in the divide between the party of Donald Trump as it emerged and the party of Mitt Romney as mm -hmm. it was. And you were sort of at the fulcrum of that. You were one of the Republicans who, in early October of 2016, you called on... Donald Trump to get out of the race. Mm -hmm. If you had your time over, would you do that again? I would. Absolutely. Without even a doubt, I, I would. Um, first of all, it, one of my least favorite, it's not like I, I'm upset with you for saying it because everybody says it, but my least favorite phrase is the party of Donald Trump. Um, I like to remind people that I've actually been a Republican longer than Donald Trump has. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, I don't mind it as much when people say the party of Lincoln or the party of Ronald Reagan, because I felt like instead of them changing the party, they actually embodied what the party believed in. Mm. So it's one of the reasons why I, um, I don't like it when people say the party of Donald Trump, because I believe that Republicans and the platform that I believe in are, is actually compassionate and, and actually um, cares about people and wants to bring people from the lowest common denominator up. As for whether I would change what I've said, um, I didn't go into politics. I didn't go into this. Um, this is not something I said I wanted to do when I grow up. And I felt as a mother, as a wife, as an American, as a Utah, as a human being, I needed to stand up um, for, for something. I needed to make sure that my integrity was intact. So... No, I don't regret anything that I've said. And if it means that I had to step down for that or lose a seat for it, so be it. I mean, I'm, I was, I'm a whole person before that, and I'm a whole person after it. Now, Mia, I'm going to take a risk and quote a demographic statistic in front of Simon Jackman, which is a risky thing to do. But by my recollection, Simon, 95% of black women voted for Barack Obama and for Hillary Clinton. Uh, I mean, that in, in a de demographic sense, that must be one of the most predictive, yep. um, you know, <laughs> uh, things of, of voting intention. Yep. How did we get to that stage when this was, after all, the party of Lincoln once upon a time? Um, since 1964, it was the last time that um, a Democratic candidate for president won the white vote. That's a confronting phrase for an Australian audience, the white vote. Um, but in a country as racially diverse as the United States, it has great significance, great historical significance, the fact that we talk about the party of Lincoln, for one thing. 
Um, but Lyndon Johnson in the mid-60s pivots the Democratic Party to be the party of civil rights. And from that point onward, no Democratic candidate for president has won the white vote. The white vote averages from 1968 through Donald Trump about 60-40, Republican, Democrat, no matter who the Republican candidate is and almost no matter who the Democratic candidate is. Um, on the other hand, African-Americans, um, um, minorities more generally, that is when you average over the non-white part of the American electorate, that's about a 70-30 Democratic, Republican electorate. Among um, blacks, that's much higher, um, as high as 88-12 or even into the 90s when um, Obama was at the top of the ticket. And then you throw in the added spice of, of gender uh, among um, um, Inside black America, it, it's even more democratic uh, than that baseline number of 88 or 92. You can pop right up into, essentially, there aren't many people left. So, um, Mia, yes, you do live. Uh, you are emblematic of a very rare part um, of, of the American electorate, to be sure. So, Mia, you yeah. said you didn't grow up thinking you'd go into politics. Never. At what point did you identify as a Republican? Actually, you know, I think my parents, um, all of the lessons that they taught me, uh, my parents coming from Haiti in the 70s, my dad's first vote um, as a U.S. citizen was for Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. um, when you come from a country where there is, the country that my parents came from where there's one dictator after another and you just want to feel like you have some sense of control. You just want to be able to work to take care of your family without somebody coming in and telling you what to do, how to live. Inherently for him, it was Republican. Less government, more people. Um, so actually growing up and hearing those stories and listening, my, I mean, I would just sit at the, um, right at my dad's foot just listening to stories over and over again about their lives in Haiti. And so when I... Um, I knew what I, what I affiliated. Mm. This is one of the things that um, when people say that the Republican Party has a huge potential constituency uh, among Hispanic voters yeah. who have a, often have come from uh, left-wing dictatorships, sometimes right-wing right dictatorships, but, right. but that, you know, the, these are people who have a distrust of uh, big government, mm -hmm. uh, want freedom, want uh, free enterprise. They're religious. Their religious yeah. aspects yeah. As, yeah. as well. So, so in, in a way, you're more emblematic of what we see as trends in the immigrant communities right. than the African-American communities. Right. Well, okay, so there, there are several prongs to that. You're, you're right. Um, one of the problems that Republicans have is actually going out and um, getting into those communities and, and talking. It's one thing. They say, you know, uh, the idea is the policies are good. They should be voting for us anyway, right? But people, you, you, that's not how it works. It's incredibly personal. Politics is personal. Um, and so unless people really feel like you care about them or can relate to them, they're not going to hand over their lives to you or give you their trust. The other side of that is this. I'm, I was the only Republican member in the Congressional Black Caucus. Um, Cedric Rich Richmond was the chairman um, the second term that I was there. Very, very close friendship with the people in um, the members in the Congressional Black Caucus, believe it or not. And there was one point where I asked Cedric, I said, um, okay, so I guess I just don't understand. Explain to me why you're a Democrat, because for me, being a Republican um, is, I, I, you know, you can pick and choose your ideas, but it's fundamentally less government, more people, states' rights, different things like that, free markets. 
Um, and how is it that from rate from uh, Lincoln, you're you're in this you're on this side of the fence? And it's when you open your mind and you quiet down a little bit and you actually listen to what people have to say, you get a wide perspective. Um, your sphere of knowledge becomes a little grander. And he said, it was the states that held us back when it came to civil rights. So he, being from the state of Louisiana, all of a sudden that made sense to me, right? Where he said, the federal government was the one that came yeah. in and opened up. So you've got these two different ideas, right? So you've got this community of immigrants that doesn't feel like this party actually reaches out to them. And then you've got another that feels like the federal government was the one that came in, which is why I see, I think that we've seen historically, even though the ideals are the same, we should... Um, the religious aspects, the um, just the family-oriented aspects would align more with one party. You see them going over to the party that's actually um, reached out. Mm. It's intriguing to me that as well as being in a party which since the 60s has had um, the more troubled relationship with race, mm -hmm. it might be safe to say, you're also a member of... Uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yes, I'm a unicorn, I guess. I'm just, you know, there's Which a lot are, of Which in this country <laughs> is still more broadly referred to as, as, as Mormons, yes. although that's sort of a term yes. that's becoming seen as increasingly mm -hmm. pejorative. Uh, so that church had a, a difficult relationship with African-Americans in particular, really until the 1970s, mm -hmm. uh, excluding them. Right. So right. you are a, a person who doesn't shy away from going into difficult rooms. <laughs> it's, you know, I, what somebody once told me, I think it was Peyton Manning, um, who said to me once, he's like, leaders put themselves in uncomfortable situations and become comfortable there. Um, for, for me, um, I, I guess the best way to put it is uh, I had an opportunity to go to the University of Chicago and to speak to some aspiring black uh, attorneys there. And everyone told me, don't go. They're going to hate you. This is Obama territory. They're going to just dislike you. There isn't anyone that they dislike more than a, a conservative black woman. So I went anyway. And um, one, one uh, young lady stood up and she said, I don't understand how you can be a black female LDS, Latter-day Saint, Republican, living in the state of Utah in today's America. And I said, it's because I refuse to fit this mold that society tells us that we fit into. I said, um, can you imagine if people like Martin Luther King decided to take the fact that government said he was a second-class citizen? You wouldn't be here today. So whether you agree with me or not, that's not the point. The point is to preserve your right to make decisions for yourself. When you have a democracy of people with different ideas and they're coming together and they're talking about what they believe in, that's, that's democracy at its best. I, I'm not to, I, I think everyone thinking the same is not good for a country. Mm. You have to have debate. You have to have different ideas. Simon, I'm interested in your view on how race in America has evolved over the last decade or so, mm. from the election of Barack Obama. And uh, then that period after Obama's election where we saw a generation of, uh, of uh, Republicans, including uh, Herman Cain, running for the presidency mm. in 2012, African-American candidates such as Mia as well, yeah. where there was a sort of a restatement of this is also our party, it's not just Democrats. Right. Sure. I mean, and if you just think of this from a, I think about it in terms of market share, and demography in the United States, is, it's like a glacier rolling downhill. No matter what any politician does, by 2040, by 2045, America will be a majority, minority nation. 
And if you're a Republican um, strategist at this point in time, you've got to be thinking, right now we have the white electorate is 72% of the electorate, maybe 73 or 74, depending on the bumps in turnout. But that's been going down by about two percentage points every four years, slowly, almost a linear trend. And, uh, and meanwhile, the non-white part of the electorate, where we struggle to break 30% of vote share, uh, is growing. And so at some point, you know, you're trying to milk more and more out of a smaller and smaller part of the electorate. And, and for me, I think this is the fundamental sort of, if you're thinking about American politics with a 10-year or 15-year sort of set of goggles on, this is the big challenge facing the Republican Party right now. And I think anybody that takes that, that perspective can read the stats as easily as I can, and you arrive at that same conclusion. I think what's interesting, you know, having spent time with Mia over the time she's been in Australia, just being reminded of the practical problems that you're solving when you are an elected official. Yes, I can interrogate this proposition about where we might be 15, 20 years from now, but I've got this thing coming up next year. Yeah, <laughs> called, for the House, it's two years. Yeah, now. right, called re-election, mm-hmm. and I've got my primary, and if you're the president, you're dealing with much more shorter-term problems like that. And, and the electoral cost-benefit analysis, if you will, of, of going long and making these risky investments that may pay off 10 or 15 years down the road versus hanging on to what we've got now, well, a lot of politicians will pursue shoring up the latter than the former. Mia, the the media in in 2012 and 2014 sort of uh, pegged you to the Tea Party movement. Mm. Was that... um, was that the reality of it? What was your relationship no, that to what, that movement? I think that that's what... First of all, I was going um, up against a uh, pretty right. uh, Matheson who his father was the governor. I mean, they were trying to hold on to that seat. So the best thing that they could do was try and paint me as an extreme right. Um, you know, everyone has their ideas of what, what that is, and it's inc- incredibly fluid. I tend to take issues and deal with issues on a... So I, I, don't, I don't know if anybody... I, I'm not one that you can put into a box in mm. any, um, any Cle- way, clearly. shape, or form. Yeah. <laughs> right. So um, I think that that's, that was probably what um, the idea that, they, that um, mm. some people needed to paint in order to win that election to say, uh, well, that, that may be dangerous. One of the things that we've been talking about since we've been here in Sydney is that people are more concerned about um, the unknown or what the prospect of what they're going to lose versus the idea of what they may gain. So they're almost better off. A great example of that is the Affordable Care Act. Um, The Affordable Care Act, after it was implemented, um, Americans just by a long shot went and took over, gave the House, the Senate, and the White House to Republicans. And it was mainly because of uh, the the complete overhaul of the health care. So the year after that, of course, the main idea is to repeal the ACA. The problem is everyone was kind of like, you know, there was this a tactic of, you know, mom or dad is going to die. They're not going to get their health care. They're not going to be able to do this. We've already moved down this aisle. You're, gonna, you're going to change everything. So people overwhelmingly, I know because I was like taking 200 calls a day in my office, were like, don't, don't do this. Um, do it little by little. Don't overhaul this whole thing. Um, so there's, there's this idea that if you can put enough fear in someone's mind, um, it, it kind of clouds out any prospect of what they may gain. 
that. Diabolically complicated area of policy, I know. But can you, can you sum up for us why? Because in a country such as Australia, where we have uh, both private and, and government uh, health insurance, yeah. universal coverage, uh, when we saw Obama covering 30 million people that hadn't been covered before, sounded good. Why would anyone oppose that? Mm. Okay, well, my job here is to tell you the truth about what's going on with you. And I'm not going to, I'm not sitting here. I'm, my job is not to tell you what you may or may not want to hear. So you're going to get a candid, um, a, a truthful answer from me. And that is the fact that the president, uh, the former president, Barack Obama, stood up and told people, your premiums will not go up. We've got this handled. They said, you can keep your um, insurance if you want your private insurance. But people were completely losing their private insurance. Their pre premiums were skyrocketing 300, 400 um, percent. There were people that were paying the health care premiums or the health care fines without having any health care. So all of a sudden they had a bill, even though it was a small bill, $2,000 a year to not have any insurance at all as a penalty is a big deal. So it was the complete overhaul um, that, that made people feel like, hmm. Now, there's some things that needed to change, and I don't think anyone's doubting that, but I think the best way that we should have done it or that government should have done it, this is before I came in, is little by little, line by line, so that you can at least have some sort of prediction of what may happen, because at the end of the day, we ended up having quite a bit of unintended consequences with the Affordable Care Act. Where is public opinion on this now, Simon? Because it took a long time to get to anything approaching majority yeah. support for Obamacare. Yeah, really hard to unwind um, at this point, um, precisely because now people have sort of gotten used to it. Um, be very diabolical. I mean, it plays very well in the Republican base, but, but um, very hard for me to see, and indeed we've seen this legislatively, very tough for those things to go all the way through the Senate in particular. Uh, why? Because it's now increasingly a settled matter. And indeed, you know, very early in my term here running the U.S. Study Center, we got a phone call from one John Howard uh, who wanted to have a chat about how he thought the politics of this was playing out in the United States, reflecting on his own experience here in Australia, the, the conservative side of politics here in Australia, having fought uh, Medicare as vehemently as it had uh, for as long as it had. And then finally giving up on that um, after it had been the law of the land for about... So Howard basically made it a condition of coming back to take the leadership in 1996. This is about... Tw by that point, Australia had had this system for mm. nearly 20 years. Um, um, and that you had to let that go. And, and he was engaging us in a conversation about whether that moment had arrived for the Republican Party or whether they'd be better off if mm -hmm. they could move on and, and prosecute other issues. So where is that up to now, Mia, given that uh, Mitt Romney campaigned on repeal and replace? Right. Donald Trump campaigned on uh, repeal, replaces something even better that gives you universal coverage, and then ultimately in the, in the Congress that you were a part of, uh, the individual mandate was repealed. Right. A lot of it stayed. Well, I think that that's one of the problems that the Democrat candidates have right now, is the fact that you're hearing Medicare for all, and no one's really talking about how they're going to implement it. Right. So, of course, there's a fear of, well, who's going to pay for it? How is it going to be paid for? Is there, are you talking about taxing um, America 70%? That's a big issue. And so that's why you, you, you get this idea of, 
um, no one's really talking about how to implement it. You're talking about overhauling uh, about half of the of, of the economy when, when it comes to health care. Medicare, um, there was a lot of money that was coming out of Medicare to pay for the ACA. That's a that's a big issue and a very difficult issue for senior citizens who have paid into uh, Medicare don't have the option of going back to work to doing it, doing it all over again. So um, that's that's one of the issues that the healthcare issue is an issue that um, people have. Younger America is ready to you know implement um, universal healthcare, but uh, still, I would think that that six that about fifty plus percent is just not there yet. Yeah, is it? Um... I mean, is it a regret of yours that uh, that repealing the Affordable Care Act didn't happen? And, and if so, why didn't it happen, given that Donald Trump said, this is something I'm going to do on day one? Mike Lee. I'm going to blame some <laughs> of the... Okay, I'm going to blame some people that allow perfect to be the enemy of a good win. That is the biggest problem that we have today, right? We have um, people that are saying, I want all or nothing, and there's nobody in the middle saying, let's work this out. So I, uh, we felt like we came up with a pretty good compromise, pre-existing conditions left in there. Um, other things that people really wanted to be able to get insurance across state lines, making it a little bit more competitive, adding a little bit more free market principles, but creating this area where um, people who didn't have health care would, be, would, be, would have a boost in Medicaid um, and it wasn't perfect. I don't know if you're going to ever get a perfect answer. Um, the best thing that you can do is just improve upon it little by little and change with the way that, that your country is changing. Um, but unfortunately, we had um, Ted Cruz and Mike Lee, and they wanted a complete full repeal, which stopped it from going to the debate. They, didn't, they stopped cloture from going to the debate. Um, and so we... Finally, when they got it up, you know, you've got um, Senator McCain, which it was a it was even worse than what the House came up with, you know, did the thumbs down and the whole thing fell apart. And I took all those calls for nothing. <laughs> was, yeah. was that about uh, political purity on the parts of, 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 of Lee and, and, and Cruz or was it a, a branding exercise? I mean, what was the all of the above? Yeah. Um, You know, one of the things that we talk about with, uh, I wanted to bring up that Simon brought up, is the House of Representatives doesn't have the luxury of making, um, it's a little bit more difficult for them to make a decision and then have five, six years to, you know, explain that. Where the House of Representatives, it's a little different. Um, So you've got... Senator Lee, you've got a couple of people that are explaining their way through that vote. Um, because if there was an election right after that, I don't know if those people would be there. We, we hear a lot about um, dysfunction in Washington and hyperpartisanship yeah. and so on. Simon, are there are there any objective measures to say, you know, <laughs> is this um, kind of a you know a media creation uh, or or has is Washington actually broken? Does gridlock exist? Um, the, the measure we often use are rates of cross-party voting, um, and, and they're on, they haven't been this low since about 1890, um, and it was, it's really been a fascinating sort of opportunity to speak with someone who's been there and, and, and dealt with that, the way that the American parties in the legislature resemble Westminster-style political parties, where the, the mechanism for retribution is a little bit different 
but uh, a primary challenge um, when you don't toe the line. You add on that a two-year cycle, and just listening to me answer that last question, John, um, when you're dealing with a complex matter and the whole caucus is, is being whipped in one direction, one of, historically one of the things the American legislative system did with weaker party discipline is that someone representing a marginal seat could say, mm, this is too hard for me and I'm going to have to go the other way. The leadership and the structure and the money uh, inside American politics now has really put pressure on marginal seat holders to toe the line um, in, in a way that it starts to resemble um, um, uh, parliamentary-style systems. And indeed, the, the British House of Commons is in a bit of a state of disarray at the moment. But over the last two or three years... I've seen some analyses that show there are higher rates of party voting in the U.S. House of Representatives than in the House of Commons. Uh, and, and we hold out Westminster as the archetype of a... It is the Westminster system, and it does have you know, where that, that system comes from. It just speaks volumes of how the American parties have changed, really, in you know, our lifetimes. Um, it wasn't this way as recently as... Well, we'll go back to, to Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill, that... But I can, you know, or, or when you know a senator like John Bro, um, you know, from Louisiana, you could you, getting deals done. And I look back at some of that landmark legislation, uh, you know, could NAFTA pass today, mm-hmm. and had to get up. You had Biden and McCain coming mm-hmm. together in the mm-hmm. Senate to shepherd it through. Um, it, it's hard to see those big legislative breakthrough moments happening in, in the current configuration of how the parties have, have withdrawn to their own side of the aisle. Mia, given that you're, uh, you're in uh, Utah's 4th Congressional District, mm-hmm. uh, so deep red state, but a uh, pretty evenly balanced district, even with gerrymandering that happens these days and so on, uh, you won and lost a few elections by like six, 700 votes? Sorry to remind you of that. No, 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 no. <laughs> you never, the first one was 768. Mm. The last one was at guess, 600, 620. Was yeah. Yeah. You don't forget those numbers. Um, <laughs> So we're talking about a quarter of a percent of yeah, the vote in not, a congressional district. Um, well, okay, so there are several things. It was kind of like a perfect storm where, <clears throat> to be honest with you, I was out on my own. I kind of saw some of these things coming in. There were a couple of things that were on the ballot, medical marijuana, mm-hmm. um, redistricting, which really boosted quite a bit of the left um, registration and votes. And also... Um, the way that the county clerks can kind of um, legally actually play with provisional ballots. They can keep some, throw some out, you can't, and and they have the legal right to do that. Um, If it got close, then we knew that somebody who was in um, that seat would be, somebody who was close would be able to take it if they needed to. The Republicans weren't even looking at this. They were looking at people like Barbara Comstock's seat, um, that I knew was going to go. I mean, I, I, we all knew that that seat wasn't going. It's a Virginia seat. There were several other seats that were in big trouble that I think that they kind of tried to spread themselves a little too thin that by the time they got to it, they lost all of these seats. And a large percent of, percentage of women, over half of the Republican women, um, their seats were gone. And so- everybody in the middle. Also. Yeah, right. So it, it, what's really interesting is people talk about, oh, my gosh, like, why aren't you bridging the gap? We are a product of our own um, mess, our own society. Um, what I mean by that is anybody in the House of Representatives, if you think about it right now, anybody who's actually stood up to the president or said this, they're either retired or they're gone. Mm. 
and Democrats are more than willing to pick up those seats, which creates a bigger divide. So you've got people on this end and people on that end, and nobody coming in the middle because as soon as they're weakened, somebody's ready to come and pick up. Those, what about that Simon? That sort of hollowing out of the of the middle ground that sometimes inevitably happens if you've got the majority shifting from one side to the other. It's the moderates that cop it. That's right. And and the demobilisation of moderates in the American system as the parties withdraw to the base is one of the pathologies that accompanies that. But me, I want to know. Do you think there was a way? You could have racked up a slightly different voting history in the House and, and, and have won the seat. There was, a, there was plus two or plus three of vote share for you, and, and you could have made a credible claim to the Speaker and said, hey, I need to vote this way on this, otherwise I'm not going to be... You can have me in the, in, the, in the legislature two years from now or not, but if you want me two years from now, I'm going to have to vote against you guys a couple of times, as did your predecessor, the mm. Democrat who held the seat, had the most had the highest rate of cross-party voting of any Democrat mm. of when he represented the seat. I'm just thinking, you know, was it was it something you, you might I have think, done differently in, in the legislature? Have, I think um, there's this illusion that policy actually makes the the candidate. That's not that's not what it that's right. not reality. The reality is the media, and the reality is how who tells a story and tells a story best. Um, If you think about it, I ran circles around my predecessors. I mean, if you, Matheson passed one bill in the 12 years that he was a House of, um, a member of the House of Representatives, and that was naming a post office. Um, I actually passed uh, really substantive legislation, seven in the last year. Um, It's funny because there was this meme that was out that said Mia Love passed more bills this year than the person that's currently in the seat because of some of the bills that were sitting in the Senate that we actually were able to get through. So I'm talking about things like um, uh, stopping taxpayer obligation to perpetrators of sexual harassment. I'm um, talking about all of the bills that we, we, I supported for our, vet, for our vets. I'm talking about some of the um, bills that, we, that I passed um, trying to help our small businesses um, from dying on a vine. I mean, these are inc- incredibly important. So it has nothing to do. I don't believe it had anything role, to do. I mean, role, I did, uh, and, and this is not me tooting my own horn, but I, I had to, in the House of Representatives, say every moment away from my children have to count. And I worked as hard as I possibly could to not be a show pony, but to be a workhorse so I can get people to come along with me to pass bills in the House. So much so, David Scott from Atlanta, who is a member of the Congressional Black Caucus, a Democrat, actually gave me money supporting my campaign to the detriment of, you know, he, he got his, I mean, he got a lot of flack for that. But that had nothing to do with it. Okay. I think it has to do with the narrative of someone has to hold the president accountable, even though I was the only one in the House of Representatives really trying to hold the president accountable. It's just the narrative. Can we talk a little bit, Mia, about your relationship that was a long with? It's <laughs> a good answer. Um, your relationship with President Trump. Mm. Uh, of course, last November, even before the the final vote was tallied, but when it was not not looking great for you, he he basically said we were winning at that point. Right. That was right. so funny. I don't think he got the memo. Yeah, but but he he almost sort of held you up as an example to others. So he said, yeah. you, you know, Mia yeah. Love didn't offer me any love, and this is what happens. Too bad, Mia. Yeah. Uh, and you obviously didn't respond too well to that. 
uh, describing know, I, him as transactional. What do you mean by that? Well, that's true. It's absolutely true. Okay, so, you know, I'm, I'm not, I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt. I do everything that I possibly can to see and work with um, the good side, even when he called Haiti uh, shithole or asshole country, you can edit that word. Um, I I went in and I said, what can I do to help you? Because I, you know, we've got TPS, we've got all of these other things. I'm more interested in doing my work for people than I am about, you know, your comments. So let me help you. But there was no, there was like, oh, no, 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 the Haitian people love me. We're fine. Don't worry about it. It was just, and I was just like, you know, I'm trying to say, look, I've, we've got, I'm, I'm here what, to help. What did your parents think of that, uh, by the way? Because they, they were Trump supporters. They, they were right? a little heartbroken because yeah. um, they weren't fond of uh, Hillary Clinton. Um, there was a lot of the Clinton Foundation and the money that was um, meant for Haiti that was taken out. That was, if you're not, if you're Haitian, any, all Haitians know about this. Um, so that was, you know, this, this was an issue for them. Um, they felt also that uh, the Clinton administration put um, the president, Aristide, that was taken out, put him back in um, and kind of tried to support him a little bit. So that was that was um, there was some distrust there um, with the Clinton with the um, Clinton administration. But uh, my parents were a little heartbroken. Um, they. One of the things that happened is Mike Pence, who invited us, um, invited me and a couple of other people over for dinner early on in their administration, took the phone and called my parents and said, hey, I just want you to know you've got a great daughter. We appreciate. We... And that was so heartwarming for them. And it's really, they can't reconcile this phone call with what they're hearing from the president. They can't reconcile this, you know, the vice president and what he did personally for them with, with the president. Did you? I began by asking whether you, you regretted the uh, sort of disendorsement of Donald Trump in October of 2016. What about not giving him more love last year? What does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? I said thank you. To a mean, rally <laughs> in Salt Lake City? Uh, uh, I mean, I, I, mean I, I guess I just I just don't understand what that means. I guess I just don't have time to just. I mean, when people would say you need to stand behind the president, I have to remind them that the way that the government works is that there are three branches of government. One that writes the laws, the person that signs them and executes those laws, and then the, person, the group that interprets it. So as far as I'm concerned, it was our, my job and the House and the Congress's job to write the laws, and it was their job to sign them into law and to execute it, which means that they stand behind me. Right? So I just kind of felt like I, I didn't understand what that meant. My, our job, that's why it's called balance of powers. It's not meant to say, if somebody's doing something that I think is good and fits within that platform and fits within what I believe is good for the country, then hurrah, thank you, you're doing your job. I never had anyone, I never had to have somebody say, even though I appreciated the thank yous, I never had somebody say, hey, I need you to, to go to Washington and vote today. I need you to, you know, ex uh, it's just you do what you're supposed to do. That's why they elect you. So thank you and letting people know how much I appreciate bringing Joshua Holt from Venezuela home. So um, a, a Utah who was Well, he mentioned that, right. He mentioned yeah. that. He was like, he, she called me every day, asked me to help with Joshua Holt. This is a, an, a, a young American man that was thrown into prison 
for no reason and suffering every day. And the, that's what I'm talking about by transactional right. because that was personal to me. So he felt that he'd helped you out with, with then, this then constituent who was in jail. I needed to do something right. to return that. And, and I never, ever felt that the parents had to do anything to, um, to, to thank me for doing my job. Tell me. I, as a mom, I had to say, what would I do if that were my son? How would I want my representative to behave if that were my right. son? And it caused me to lose a lot of sleep, but it was my job. So given how passionate you were about, about the job and the things that you were elected to do that were not necessarily in line with what the president was seeking to do, you had a, a separate and distinct role under the constitution and, and so on, but you had to work with the White House to get certain things done and yes. understand the power of the, of the presidency. Yeah. Right now, if you were in the House and you were considering the possibility of impeaching this president, what would, what would be weighing in your uh, mind? There's, there's the question there. Okay, so... Again, understand this is this is my opinion and um, what I believe the the issues that Republicans are facing today. Um, impeachment is a very um, serious um, process, and it's only been done twice in the United States. And whatever the result is, it's bad. It's a lose lose. So there. First of all, the, I, I would. I'm just going to start off by saying no. I would. I would be voting no for several reasons. One is um, having enough evidence to know that there was criminal activity. Um, two is the way that the process is being done, the American people are completely shut out of it. In other words, the House of Representatives is a branch of government that's closest to people. If the people do not have a vote on the floor, then they don't have a voice in the House. So the fact that this is done completely behind closed doors and there's not a vote so that the American people can see where their representatives are, or even have the opportunity to say to their representative, I want you to say yes or no to that, is completely shutting Americans out, which is not okay with me. And then the other thing also is you are not going to get a Republican that's going to buy into this if they're not even in the picture. So when you look at some of the hearings, for instance, you looked at the um, Benghazi hearings, that was actually open. You had debate on both sides, and it was, I mean, people were seeing what was going on. You had Trey Gowdy and um, uh, Elijah Cummings, who has just recently passed, um, <clears throat> debating back and forth about and having these hearings. This is completely, the process is um, done completely by the Speaker of the House and Adam Schiff and, and um, the people that are actually in that impeachment process. There's no, the um, Leader McCarthy, I've actually spoken to him, he's like, we're completely shut out of the process. Simon, you've written a lot about the impeachment process. How does what we're seeing or not seeing at the moment uh, coming out of Capitol Hill compare to those precedents, Clinton and Andrew Johnson, and do those precedents matter given that this is a political process, not a legal one? Um, it, it is different in, in that uh, the Judiciary Committee of the House is historically where impeachment um, matters um, find their genesis, if you will. And this is happening. Schiff and the Intelligence Committee is really kind of the prime mover and Pelosi's empowered a number of committees to do their work. It may come back to the Judiciary Committee for open, you know, rehearing of t- and, and, you know, a reboot. I don't know, though, if, if, if they'll do that. Because you're right, John, at the end of the day, it is 
I mean, we use the word criminal, but it, it kind of is and kind of isn't. We, the Constitution makes reference to high crimes and misdemeanors. Mm -hmm. So the word mm -hmm. crime is there, I guess, in some sense. No one really knows what a high crime and misdemeanor is. It basically is what Congress decides it is. Right. Um, and, and while it has, it's confusing to Australians in particular, it has all the, the formalisms of a, of, a, of a criminal legal matter, but it is, <laughs> it it is, is a political And, you know, what the House does is like indictment, but then it goes to the Senate for trial, um, which is a very unusual thing as well, where the Senate can basically set its own rules of procedure, um, and indeed they did during the Clinton trial. Um, there were votes taken to whether to compel testimony from Monica Lewinsky, uh, for instance, that failed. Uh, but a number of votes like that that, the, that that politicians will take sitting as a, a court. Um, and so it's... It's this hybrid of politics and legal forms, but don't forget, it's, it's political. May, it, uh, May I add a little bit of please. inside baseball to sure. this? Um, that people really aren't seeing, and, and what is some of the underbelly of, of how this process came about. Understand that the speaker didn't really want to do this. Actually, she, she held back quite a bit, and amid a lot of pressure from the very far left, it's, it was just, um, you've got the um, representative Alexandria Estacio-Cortez, you've got Representative Tlaib, you've got a lot of people that have been pushing for this, Al Green, um, so many people that have been pushing for this for a long time. All of a sudden, you're looking at this entire thing and you're saying, it, it, it would be naive for you to think um, that even if the majority, they kept the majority, that you would still be speaker unless something actually started happening. I think that's why you see a little bit of the, hmm, maybe we do the inquiry, maybe we don't hold it until we're able to convince the American people that this is the right thing. I think this is exactly what you're seeing. And unfortunately, um, it, it is a political process, and you see politics instead of policy is the, is, is the king. In, in all of this. It's, it's, the driving, it's the driving factor. We'll open up to questions from the audience in a moment. If you want to raise a hand, we've got a roving mic. I'm not sure if we do or we just shout mm -hmm. out. We do have a roving mic. But my, my, my question, Mia, before we move to, to audience questions, mm -hmm. um, the future of the Republican Party. Yeah. Uh, people see the future as having something to do with whatever Mitt Romney is doing in Washington <laughs> and what people like you are going to do next. Yeah. Um, at some point, whether it's conviction in the Senate or at the ballot box next November or in 2025, Donald Trump will stop being president. Yeah. Um, what does the Republican Party look like then? Well, uh, you bring up another big fact. The only, you have to understand that the only person that's actually been a little bit more outspoken has been Mitt Romney on this issue. But then again, he has... He just got there and has five years um, to, to kind of fix whatever he needs to fix. So he has a little bit more of a luxury as opposed to being, you know, being on the ballot again during the president, yeah. during 2020. What do I see? I will not, I will not abandon the principles or the party that I believe in. For the most part... Republicans have put themselves into two different categories in the United States. Those who are going to defend the president at all costs because for them the alternative is just not. They, they just, either they feel like they have a loyalty um, to the party to stay with the president or a loyalty to the president himself. They put themselves in that category 
or you've got people that have put themselves in the category of, I am going to leave the party because I cannot have this person represent me or represent the things that I believe in. I offer a third idea, and that is you hold people accountable to the principles you believe in. That is the only way the America that I know is going to survive, that um, the American dream, the, the uh, principles that my parents taught me growing up, the, you know, you don't own anything and, you, you know, you never can't own, earn, um, you, you got anything that is yours, you have to work for and, and try to do what you can and also care for others um, who can't care for themselves. All of those things, um, I think you have to stand strong and call it out in order to preserve the, the principles you believe in. You've been very candid with us, but you, you also still have that polish of a, of, a, of a skilled politician. It makes me wonder... What? What, 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 what does that mean? <laughs> it, it, means it means you give, you give, you give good and, and, and layered answers. And as a journalist, I, I, I fear that I won't get a, a straight answer if I ask the question, are you going to run again? Oh, gosh. And I guess the answer is I really don't know. And that's the, that's the truth. That is the truth. If I... Um, you know, I... What the... I feel as if the luxury of being where I am right now is being as um, candid, although I, I will always continue to do what I, you know, um, what I believe is right. I, I don't know if there's an opportunity to continue to serve my country in a way that makes sense then I'll, I, I'm not going to say no, but I'm really, I'm loving life right now. And I, I love being part of the United States Study Center. I, um, I, I just, I really feel like in, some, in so many ways, I'm, I'm contributing in a way that the gridlock in Washington can't contribute in. So. Maybe. I'll, tell, I'll, I'll, I'll sum that up as a, as a maybe. <laughs> All right. Uh, where's the mic? Where's the mic? Where's the mic? Where's the mic? Over here. Thank you, Mia. Um, Freddie Sharp's my name. I was inspired by your story, your family story, coming from Haiti, fleeing dictatorship, settling in America, and your father voting for Ronald Reagan in 1980, which sits against a bizarre paradox given America's long and inglorious history of regime change, installing and supporting brutal dictatorships around the world, including in Central America, and to this day supporting the House of Saud. Um, Erdogan, Orban in Hungary, the list goes on. How do you personally reconcile that paradox in your own personal political philosophy? Okay, I, I'm trying to figure out what, what you mean by the my The question that philosophy. you fled regime, uh, brutal regimes to America to support for a regime-changing institution, the American government, with hundreds of years of history of enforcing brutal regime change and yeah. supporting brutal regimes. How do you square that Circle, how do you resolve that paradox yourself? Hmm. That America has supported dictatorships around the world from oh. time to time. Perhaps, yeah. Perhaps, uh, maybe even. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's funny because one of the things that I didn't like that the United States would do is, is not just here picking winners and losers here, but also going abroad and picking winners and losers. Um, that's, that's been... Um, uh, America's always tried to um, spread its influence or kind of flex whatever muscle um, they think they have in, in, in shared interest. Um, I think that the way I reconcile it is 
there are allies that we have that are in the battle with us. I look at, for instance, um, the relationship that we have with Australia, relationships that we have um, with our allies in Israel. Um, in Israel, I support um, making sure that we keep those allies strong because they're on the front wars of terror. Um, I don't want to see the whites of somebody's um, eyeballs before we realize we're in trouble. Um, and there's a good shared interest. So as long as there is, as long as the United States is out there trying to protect, um, trying to protect Americans from threats, both domestic and foreign, I believe in, in that involvement. In regime changes, I, I, don't, I don't appreciate any taking away the voice of a country's um, people in order to keep somebody in power. I think countries need to really take care of that on themselves, take care of that for themselves, and we work within with who we have for shared interests. I don't know if that answers your question, but mm. I just... I, I wonder <laughs> as well, Mayor... i understand what... Yeah, yeah, I, I wonder as well, you, you talked about the transactional nature of, of, of President Trump. Is that how you view that now famous July phone call with uh, President Zelensky of, of Ukraine... What, what can you do for me? Look at what we're doing for you. Is that, is that a, a part of Trump's transaction? I think so. And I don't know if he thinks he was doing anything wrong. That's what's really interesting to me. It just kind of blows my mind. I think that that's the way that um, he's used to doing business, and that's what he's done. And, and it's just really odd to me. Um, the one thing that people like about the president is that he's not he's not polished. But it's also the thing that really hurts us as Americans when you're out there and you're um, I think any time you have, you call a foreign entity to be involved in United States um, politics, it's a bad move. It's almost like that might be Donald Trump's epitaph as president. He didn't know it was wrong. He didn't know it was wrong to, to have the G7 no, at, at one of his resorts. I think it's actually different than that. I think it's different than that. I think, it's, I think it's not, I didn't know it was wrong, because that would mean that somebody was sorry, right? That would mean that there was like some humility there. Um, which, you know, and I don't say that to be, to, to be funny. I actually say it in honesty because there's something to be said about humility. I think that there would be a lot of leeway given if the president said, you know what, I, I, I am sorry I said those things or I'm sorry I did that. But there's, there's really none of that. And I think that that's where I have an issue because there's no, there's, there's no humility or apology for um, it's just we did this, get over it, or this is right, or I don't understand, you know, this, it, it, that's, that's a problem I have. Okay, another question? Thank you very much for a terrific talk. Um, to my mind, the most startling comment that the President has made in his term in office was to refer to Omarosa Manigault Newman as a dog and it occurred to me that in this country, if our Prime Minister were to refer to a woman in that way, he, his position would be in jeopardy. And I'm wondering, without putting, implying any, that there were any racial overtones in what the President said, what do you as a black woman think of his remarks? Well, um, obviously, I, um, those remarks are, are horrible. Um, if anybody says anything like that, I mean, gosh, I, I teach my children to um, treat people with respect. Um, so that, that's, uh, that's a given. Um, personally, uh, they're, th those comments, are, they're, they're unacceptable. They, they really are, especially a president who is supposed to support um, and represent all Americans. I... Um, 
But this is, I, I, I wonder when people are going to stop being surprised, because if you remember, during the debate, he said some things about Carly Fiorina and her face, right? He, this is not, it was an unconventional part that was, um, that led him to where he is, which he's not going to move away from that. And so we have to learn um, how we're going to react to that. And you may agree with me or disagree with me, but I will not allow the words of the president to dictate how I behave as a human being. I am way above that, way, way above that. And as a mother, I have to teach my children to not react to what other people say. You have to understand, I grew up, I mean, I'm, I, I grew up with my parents saying these t- things to me as a, not, not the things that the president said, but the fact that people are going to, you are, you are a black woman growing up in America. I don't want you to be a victim. You are going to be empowered. If somebody has a problem with you, that's their flaw, not yours. That's something they have to fix, right? So I'm way, I'm way above that. Um, and I will not allow the words of the president or anybody to dictate how I believe. I'm an example to my children and hopefully an example to the people that I represent um, and to the United States um, of compassion and progress. I mean, you've, no, you've noted that, you know, in a way, President Trump is an equal opportunities insulter. And, and it's really just a matter of, you know, what, what, is it, what is he sort of homing in on with various, you know, Sleepy Joe or, or Low Energy Jeb or whoever. It has been noted, though, that particularly on Twitter, he, um, when talking about women of colour, yeah. he, he often uses words like stupid. Uh, low, low IQ individual. Right. And we're talking about fellow Congresswomen, um, uh, you know, Wilson, Waters... Uh, the squad, Tlaib, and others. Um, is Trump a racist? Uh, this, is, <laughs> this is a question that I'm asked all the time. And, uh, you know, I, no one can ever get into the president's head and say whether he's racist or not. I don't know if he knows. Um, <laughs> uh, but I can say this. Those comments are. They really are. Um, and he, he may very well believe that he can say those things, but, but, he's, but he, you know, he's not uh, racist. I, I, it's, that's, not, that's not a question for me to answer. It, it really isn't. Um, I just, those are flaws he has to fix. What are you going to do differently if the answer is yes or no? You're going to keep doing it. Right. Yeah. And what, is, what if the what answer is yes? Yeah. Mm. Right? Yeah. Good question. Do we have another question? <laughs> uh, 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 uh. No, no. Yeah. Make okay. one up if you didn't have one. Yeah, no, yeah. I do. Um, <laughs> so the Republican Party has always been the free trade party, but even before the 2016 election in the Republican primaries, there was a lot of anti-TPP talk. Um, do you see the future of the Republican Party still having free trade as a sentiment, or are we beyond that? I'm a free trader. I've always been a free trader. Um, it, it's, I, I follow these. I, I guess I'm just too practical in my thoughts and beliefs. Um, I think that any, uh, whenever you can get products, uh, services at the lowest cost possible, that's good for the poor, that's good for the middle class, that's good for everybody, right? So that's how people actually become richer, right? Whatever they can bring into their home 
at the lowest cost possible. So um, it's, it's really interesting. This is the whole idea of um, whether you're going to support the president at all costs or whether you're going to um, stand up to some of the things that you believe is incorrect. Now, um, as a, when I was a member of Congress, um, the, the trade war with China was, was beginning. And we just, I just wanted to know if there was a strategy, what it was. Because I felt like it was my job to go back to my district and say, right. hey, guys, the, the, the president actually knows what he's doing. He's actually said this, this, this. But we didn't get any of that. As a matter of fact, we did something that was very un-Republican, which is created um, a barrier for farmers and then bailed them out. That was just something that we don't, we don't do. You don't create a problem. I mean, we're against bailouts to begin with. You don't create an issue and then all of a sudden say, don't, don't worry about it. Um, so that's something that still kind of baffles me. There are people that have just kind of said, hey, um, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to see how this plays out. Um, and, and I think it's a rolling of the dice. I think it's uh, seeing who's going to fold. And I think that the president will be really lucky if everything turns out um, the way it turns out great. But in the meantime, how long, how long are the farmers going to take it? How long are people going to deal with this? How long does it take before somebody says, okay, I can't deal with this any longer? Now, understand that these are the people, um, blue-collared Americans, um, a lot of the farmers, the farmers, these are the people that voted for the president. So there's this idea that, um, you know, I've got to make sure I take care of them because... You know, they, I just need them to stick with me. But you kind of have to figure out how long will that last because there's only so much. When people start worrying about feeding their children, all of a sudden, you know, something's got something's to give. So, yes, that, it's, I, I don't really know how to answer that except to say um, it, it falls into that category. Those who are going to ask questions and those who are going to say, I'm going to follow the president, even though that moves, that's, far away from my platform and what I believe in historically. Is I just a... wanted some explanation, though, something. Hmm. Have we got a question from this half of the room? I hate to feel as I'm neglecting you. Have we got a question? Back to this side. over here. All over here. Thank you. Uh, David Arnold. Um, Mia, I was wondering, we've talked about the hollowing of the middle ground um, mm -hmm. a couple of times tonight. Um, Let's look forward. Trump wins. Um, we come up for the next election campaign. Um, is this the new normal for the Republican Party? Oh, gosh, I hope not. I am still, I am an optimist. I, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I believe that people, for the most part, are good or want to do good things. Um, and I hope that we all know that we're, we're flawed, you know, that's part of the human growth is to see some of those flaws and fix that. Um, but I, I believe in people. I, I look at our history and I've seen the times where when, for lack of a better word, the crap hit the fan and we stood up. So I... I don't believe that this is... I hope that this is not the new normal because the direction that... Um, my country is going in right now is is creating this it's kind of a civil war um it's this lack of respect and you've got social media where there's this lack of civility 
and this just all out mean to each other. Um, I just don't understand how I could be a Republican member of the Congressional Black Caucus and have those members treat me and I treat them like family to where we are now. There's nobody, there's, there isn't that bridge. Can you imagine if that was happening in all of the caucuses? There isn't that bridge any longer. We have taken the fibers that have held us together as people where we could talk civilly and separated it and said, now the new rule is that we are going to tear each other apart until we can convince the other person to do the same thing. I hope that that's not where we are. I refuse to believe that that's the new normal. Refuse to believe it. Let's do a bit of crystal ball gazing before we run out of time. First of all, Simon, 13 months from now, Americans will go to the polls and either re-elect Donald Trump or elect somebody else, new Congress Presuming well. he's still president. Presuming he's still president. Um, so uh, right now, given that uh, Donald Trump, uh, his numbers kind of around about where Barack Obama's were at this, at this point of his uh, re-election campaign. Ronald Reagan was in the, in the low 40s mm-hmm. at, at around this time. Is that, is that enough to say, you know what, the economy is good, this guy's probably going to get another term? Um, I don't think you can rule it out. Um, we, we have done um, quite an extensive amount of polling of ourselves at the US Study Centre. Um, we found in some polling, we did multiple head-to-heads putting different Democrats against Trump, that um, um, Trump beats, t- out of the five we tested, Trump beats three of them. We're not seeing the big gap that we're seeing in a lot of the public polls, you know, Warren leading him by 10 points. I wouldn't put much stock in that either right now. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a pathway for Trump precisely because he, he did it last time. And the pathway is he loses the popular vote but hangs on to that bunch of upper Midwestern states in particular, plus Ohio, plus Florida, um, and wins the Electoral College with, despite losing the popular vote. And I think that is a, a scenario that you cannot dismiss at all. You have to be, if you're a serious scholar of American politics, most incumbent presidents are re-elected. The economy is not in horrible shape, although we'll see how we go. He ought, to be, he ought to have a better approval number than he does, given how well the economy is. Well, that's Trump being Trump. Um, but that said, he won the presidency in such an unusual way. Could he do it again? Absolutely he could, yeah. yeah. What's your expectation, Mia, and importantly as well, you, you called on Donald Trump to drop out in October 2016. <laughs> He's still there. He's still there. You said you wouldn't impeach him if it came before... No. You in the House now. The, the, the American people um, voted, uh, well, the Electoral College, but he, he, by our rules, by our Constitution, is the President of the United States. Um, I, I think Simon's absolutely right. Uh, there is, and I don't, you guys, you can look at whatever polls you, you yeah. want. There are people, they, I call them the silent majority, that... <laughs> are thinking, I have a job, unemployment is down, he kept the promises he made to me, even though publicly I will not agree with what he says, when I go to that booth, that booth, I'm the only one there, and I don't have to say what I did one way or the other. And I think that that's where you get that silent majority. Um, My counterpart, Bruce, uh, brought something up with the United States Study Center that I think was actually quite quite brilliant and resonated um, with me and I, I think with 
a line that resonates with the American people is the president said at a rally, you don't have to like me, but you'll have to vote for me or else everything will fall apart. And remember, remember the economy is doing well. Unemployment in Utah is really low. Unemployment across the board in the United States is really low. Those blue collar workers that were that were losing their jobs overseas. I mean, they're listening to this person that is speaking for them. And even though um, they may be embarrassed by the things that that he has said, they I'm not really sure how many people are willing to say I am going to put um, what I feel morally is right in front of what I feel is working out for my family right now. So that 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 is you you just have to look at that dynamic and and what's happening in the United States. And of course, anything can change. I mean, at, at you know, if the economy uh, starts to tank, then that that's a that's a problem. I mean, you've got you don't you, you don't have. He doesn't have very much to say about it. Joe, Joe Biden has said uh, essentially that um, we can recover from one term of President Trump. We can't recover from, from two. We used to say that about Barack Obama too, by the way. Right. I'm sure everyone says it about, about, about the other <laughs> side. W, mm-hmm. Reagan. I, I wonder, yeah, in, terms all of, in terms of the future <laughs> of, of the Republican Party and the way that you identify with the Republican Party, does it change it? Does a, a second term of Donald Trump mean that it really is the party of Trump now? It's not the party of Reagan? It's certainly not the party of Lincoln? Well, here's what I would hope. I would hope that knowing that there are term limits, there's, there's a good reason for that, and, and I support it. Um, I, I would hope that um, a president who is... People would be a little bit more um, outspoken about, about at least holding his feet to the fire. I think one of the reasons why he continues to go on is because um, he's got his own echo chamber and he's not hearing from, from others about how to, how to conduct yourself um, appropriately. Um, I think that that's hopefully, uh, if he does get another, get another term, that people aren't shy about standing up for, for all Americans. I mean, you may not like somebody's politics. You may not like what they believe in. But, I mean, it's a really low bar to say at least be respectful, right? So the Republican Party you see in the future is... You didn't answer that question. Okay. A, bit, a, bit, a, bit like, a bit like the 2013 autopsy report. That is the future? This is just a kind of a break with that? Is that how you see it? I, I, you know, I never, I always, we always talk about going back to, you know, the good old days, the Ronald Reagans. There, there were problems there, too. We always talk about going back to, you know, the, the days. Gosh, can you imagine? There are a lot of Republicans that will say, give me Bill Clinton. I mean, there are people that will, you know, they'll, they'll say some of those things. Even when Barack Obama was president, there are a lot of Republicans that were like, I'll take Bill Clinton over, over this administration. But I think that there's, there's no such thing as going back. I think um, that you, you, you move, you have to move forward, and hopefully the way forward isn't a complete collapse of, I'm not talking about the economy, but American morals and morale. I'm hoping that um, our, better, our, our better sides, are, are the, the angel on our shoulders um, is a little louder 
I think we can certainly all agree on that vision for the future and we look forward to your part in the future, whatever that may be. Would you please thank our guests, Mia Love and Simon Kerr. Louise, thank you. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Louise Clegg and I am very lucky to be a director on the board of the US Studies Centre. Um, how good is Mia? <laughs> Oh. <laughs> I had to say that. Um, Mia, um, I read a little about you and uh -oh. read um, some of what you've written and someone had written recently that you were eclectically principled and I like that phrase. I hadn't really heard it before but before I met you earlier I did think because someone had written that 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 meant, therefore, that you were principled, of course, but not too tribal, and that it meant that you thought for yourself. And that has been most evident um, this evening. Um, I did think I'm going to like this woman. And, um, <laughs> and that was just fantastic. Thank you. Um, I have to say, for my part, for what it's worth, um, I was quite surprised when Trump won the election although not as surprised as some, because I do come... I live in a regional town, or near a regional town, and um, Hillary's deplorables comment shocked me, and I actually felt at the time, wow, that is crazy, and you will lose votes in middle America. And so I wasn't as surprised as some, but I personally don't think I would have or could have voted for him. And in the early days, I was very concerned about... Um, the Trump presidency because straight um, in the early days with the early... Uh, I'm a lawyer, so I watched this, um, with the early immigration decisions in the intermediate courts that were going against him, he was extremely... Um, he really took on the courts in a big way on Twitter, which no-one's surprised about. But at some point, someone in the administration must have had a word to him and... Um, he has toned down his criticism, at least, of the courts. Um, he hasn't behaved in other ways, but at least in respect of the courts, or at least the, the Supreme Court, the higher courts, he has toned that down. And for me, that is fundamental, because if you've got a very populist president like him um, at those rallies, uh, urging people to not trust the courts, that's when society's in real, real trouble, and he has toned that down. And because of that... And because of a few other things, I am less troubled um, by the Trump impact. I think that the American institutions will take care of, care of him because they are so strong. And I can see, too, Mia, that you are such you are a person who has great faith in the institutions, um, in your constitution, and in the and in the conventions and the institution of your party. And that is wonderful. I think it's clear that you um, refuse to have your values. Or, and your party appropriated, to use that phrase from another context. And so my hat goes off to you. Thank you, Thank you. for being so brave and principled. Thank you. And um, we've all really, really enjoyed this evening. It was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much.